BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Well, much as I might joke about that drive up I-80 to Sacramento, it was 100% worth it again because we got to witness one of the greatest performances in NBA playoff history in a Game 7. Steph Curry setting a Game 7 record by dropping 50 points on 38 shots in 38 minutes. It was an incredible performance. It was an indelible performance. And I mean, yeah, to, to, to be the first person to score 50 in a game seven, and not only that, but to to break the record, Durant did his, which was in game seven against in that amazing series against the Bucks in 2021. That was in overtime. Um, Durant played 53 minutes in that game. And Curry did that in a lot of different ways. And it was a lot of it. I, I thought this was really striking. I had I looked at the shot charts a little bit while we were there live, but mostly it came after the fact that the Golden State Warriors in total took 35 shots, sorry, 36 shots in the paint in this game. Stephen Curry took 14 of those. So that's more than a third of their shots. And when you consider the volume of offensive rebounds, don't worry, we'll get there. That's really striking. And to me, yes, Curry made seven threes, was seven of 18 from long range. It was that drive game, particularly in the third and fourth quarters, that was so essential. Yeah, and that was something that was talked about after the game and was basically my biggest key to this game was how were the Warriors going to shoot the ball in the paint? Because we saw in game six, they got completely shut down in the paint. Sabonis had his best defensive game. Guys like Malik Monk are flying over for block shots. The Warriors were out of control on some of these drives. And Steve Kerr said before the game that they had some adjustments. One of those was obviously going back to Draymond in the starting lineup, which was overdue. But the other one, and I asked him to elucidate these a little bit more. He said he he respectfully declined to do that because they're about to play the Lakers. But the biggest thing he talked about was the Warriors getting more spacing and you saw on Steph's drives that he was able to get a shot off uh, on most of those and a couple of things showed up to me as far as what they did to try to help their spacing one of those was they actually ran more through Kavon Looney as the handoff man and the screener to involve Sabonis get him out top but they weren't setting the screen where they typically do they weren't setting it out near half court and you know maybe inviting a double team at that point which then Looney would need to make the play going downhill. Instead, on a lot of these, they slow it down as they did for much of the game. And 
Looney would actually jog into the key and then jog back out to set the screen so that his man Sabonis wasn't quite in the same position that he might have been. And they also put Draymond Green actually in the strong side corner quite a bit, which was interesting because most teams don't necessarily want to help off the strong side corner. And Green, I think he hit one three out of that scenario. But I think it was more just that guys are not programmed to do it. And maybe if you see it, I'm sure if there were a game eight, they would look at the film and be like, yeah, we're going to help off at Draymond Green in the strong side corner. But you've been taught through your entire NBA life not to do that. And so they're able to get a lot of drives that way. They got a ton on handoffs as well for Steph Curry. And it's usually not a huge synergy play type, but Curry on eight plays that are characterized as handoffs and the the handoffs the pick and rolls the isolations when they switch the pick and roll like is that a pick and roll is that an isolation like all those can kind of run together but curry had 15 points on what were called eight handoffs and again it was just mostly him at the top quick pitch get it back and so they really did a much better job of fixing it so steph curry was able to get to the basket and then obviously the finishing was unbelievable as well and nate i brought up that i thought the second half was different i hadn't looked all the way at this point curry took four shots in the paint in the first half and 10 in the second half nine in the restricted area one in the upper paint and curry doing that that generated also generated looks for other people and that was something that Seth partner brought up during the game was that one of the key stretches was of course the warriors ridiculous offense rebounding in the third quarter and part of that was good fortune balls bouncing some of that was was effort and hustle and another part of it and this was the point that seth was making is that the king's defense was a little out of sorts a little discombobulated by the by those drives and so guys weren't in the right positions and that makes it harder to successfully rebound in those circumstances no absolutely and I, obviously kuvan Lui was fantastic we'll talk more about the, that third quarter but i i think we should finish up uh on steph here dan pulled some great stats for us so what stuck out to those uh, for you about where this kind of ranked historically as a performance well I, the first place that stuck out to me it wasn't one that dan pulled it was one that you asked me to pull before while the game was going on it was this was the most shot attempts field goal attempts that Stephen curry has ever had in the game and he didn't break that mark until kind of deep into the fourth quarter it was the play-in game against memphis a couple years ago but 38 attempts and then that ties in with something that dan pulled which was the players who took one or more field goal attempts per minute in a game where in a playoff game where they played 25 or more and there really aren't that many of those there are by dan's count seven ever and it's worth running through those very briefly curry today russell westbrook in an okc houston playoff game back in 2017 where he scored 51 mj in 88 against the Cavs, 45 shots in 44 minutes. World be free. Uh, had 27. <laughs> that's amazing that that's amazing that he's on this list. He it is well deserved. Well deserved. World be free. 77 as a sixer. 27 shots in 26 minutes. Well, here's the crazy thing about that. Like Dr. J <laughs> was on that team. He was still took 27 shots. Uh, Wally yeah, Jones. And- 30 yeah. and 28, Rick Barry, 48 and 46 um, when the Warriors played Philly. And then Wilt Chamberlain on the Philadelphia Warriors, 48 shots in 48 minutes. 
minutes. And most of those players scored 50. The two that didn't only played, you know, in the 20s. But you get up, you get up a shot a minute, you're going to score some points. Well, I think it's pretty remarkable. Some of these names, Westbrook, MJ, Will, Rick Barry. Those are the guys who are like volume scores. Steph Curry has never quite had that mentality. And he came out with that mentality in this game. And it clearly was the Warriors plan to kind of slow things down, get the ball in his hands. And Draymond said it after the game that they wanted to let him attack with a matchup he was comfortable with. And just I mean, the, the way he attacked the paint, 22 points in the paint, that's the most he's ever had. He, the previous high was 18. He didn't get a ton of free throws in, in this game either. You know, it really was just relentless, relentless drives, particularly in that second half. And you felt like even after the first half, like, man, these guys are exhausted as the first half is ending. And yet Curry, Kavon Looney leading the charge, but the overall Warriors team, Wiggins had a ton of energy too. Like they had the energy. They ultimately had the conditioning edge in the type of game that they made this into, which was a, a half court game. And the other thing that I, I thought was pretty amazing here, Steph only had one turnover. Yes. And Kendra Andrews had this stat that Steph was responsible via assist or made field goal for 26 of the Warriors, 43 field goals. And he also created 53% of their 100 attempted field goals. So I, I tried to do a little back of the envelope math on that. The Warriors per synergy had seven possessions that that were basically just straight putbacks. Uh, so wipe those out as uh, then on the rest of their offensive rebounds per synergy, they pulled them out. So that was kind of a new possession, a new shot that needed to be created. So 93 total shots. If you think he played 38 minutes out of 48, approximately 73 of those first shots were created when he was in the game. And then he set up or shot 53 of those. So I'd guess, you know, Seth's total usage looks at what percentage of the plays does the guy either take a shot, set up a shot for a teammate, by assist or potential assist or turn it over which was only one in this game so his total usage was probably in like the 65 70 percent range which is again way higher than he would be like in the regular season he's in the, the mid 40s for that so it was pretty incredible what a load he took on throughout the entire game and you know particularly in that first half when thompson is going one out of ten pool only had five points uh for him to keep them in it and then push them through with this 50 point performance was unbelievable man it is crazy to think that i've been working with helix sleep since 2015 and i think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners if you've never heard it before that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom and there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one size fits all they found the one formula the one mattress that was going to work for everyone my then girlfriend now wife and i ordered that mattress we ended up having to return it because hey guess what not everyone is the same and then she did some more research and found helix sleep we took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types and uh, helix offers 20 unique mattresses everybody sleeps differently and helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences hot or cold side sleeper back sleeper so take that helix sleep quiz find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge. It's no risk because 
you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial. They're 10 to 15 year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside these things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us do you want to go to the third quarter or do you want to talk about the first half ahead of that well i, I do i think i have a little bit more on stuff here <laughs> i mean the, it, i'll probably never run out honestly the thing that struck me just visually is for hot that was so impressive I, mean, I talked about the conditioning but again the strength like this is something that really became clear to me in last year's playoffs and even more so now of just how strong steph curry is and it isn't as much like the crazy dancing with the ball the crazy step backs as earlier his career although he can still get those off pretty well but it's just even against a guy you know a 6 8 225 like a keegan murray he gets the shoulder past the guy and he just can't be bumped off his spot and in today's game like once you know you can't put your your forearm on him to try to ride him and so then he's just going to turn the corner and it's just the conditioning level to just drive time after time not get tired physically be strong enough to keep turning the corner and then some of these finishes it's become Derek gear for him but i think he had maybe four of these in this game where he just picks up his dribble with one hand because the guy who's guarding him is right behind him right so even if you put two hands on the ball and kind of bring it to your stomach you might get stripped from behind so he just picks it up with one hand out in front of his body continues to accelerate and then we've seen guys do that one hand extension for like a layup right like steve nash kind of started that gary payton did it you know obviously steph's one of the best at that pretty pretty much every guard kind of has to 
to have that in their game at this point. But he's pulling this shot with like a high arcing finger roll floater over a defender from like 10 feet away off the glass. Like to have that kind of touch when you never even put your other hand on the ball. That's insane to be able to do that. And uh, yeah, he's just become such a good finish. Like his drive game is almost more deadly now than his shooting game, even though obviously the shooting game is what sets it all up. One of the other weird quirks of Stephen Curry's performance is that he actually missed both ends of, of a set of free throws. And it's the first time he's done that all year. Uh, and I mean, Curry, a notoriously great free throw shooter. Those were the only two he missed in the game, but he only took five and he was spectacular. I, I think for me that the volume of like you, you framed it in terms of total usage, the volume of opportunities versus the infrequency of mistakes was so unusual and for, and it's and it's not like you know there, there are a lot of low turnover great players you know like Jimmy Butler or, or DeMar DeRozan like Curry Curry is not that guy and after the game Draymond Green talked about it Kevon Looney talked about it in particular about how they uh, Looney in particular brought up the turnovers but how that's a way that they can tell that Curry is Draymond said laser focused is the lack of mistakes the consistency of that approach and you know i've covered his entire career and it isn't always a hallmark of great stephen curry games but it was a hallmark of this one the one other play i remember too i mean he didn't do much of the off ball stuff in this game and in fact he only had four possessions characterized as spot ups and four coming off of screens and then 28 of his 38 shots were self-created either pick and roll iso or handoff but the one that was so crazy at the end of the game the game is probably decided at this point but 1.3 in the shot clock he's the inbounder on a baseline out of bounds and he gets the ball in to draymond and gets out to the corner and gets the shot off all in 1.3 seconds that was just and obviously you use some of that time while the ball's in the air to draymond to just start moving and get out there but that was another play where he just like and he got it off so fast drained it from the from the right corner i was just like like i've never seen anyone do that with that little time on the clock to like get out to a corner three as the baseline inbounder with 1.3 on the clock that that was absolutely remarkable from the king's standpoint what did you make of mike braun's strategy on him because if you're giving up 38 shots and a 50 burger you you have to question that some especially because the warriors creation by non-curry players has been pretty lackluster overall in the series and just shot making even not even creation necessarily yeah i mean they had huge they had huge shot making at the end of game five but other than that it has i mean it has been spectacular and i mean there were some times clay thompson had a couple of flubs like they had him bring the ball up and in the early part of the game didn't go super well draymond didn't really have the ball in his hands that much compared to his usual standard but yeah you put extra pressure on curry you may concede some open shots but you're also take you're you're taking the ball out of the most dangerous player's hands and yeah then he can get into some of the off ball stuff i think that's a part of it and what was interesting i don't have a diagnosis on this about why sacramento's initial drive defense so i'm talking about the player guarding curry rather than the supplemental help was worse i think part of that is curry was better 
but yeah because there were times in game six when he tried to get by guys and just couldn't do it like he didn't seem to have his legs the way he did in this game i'll I'll say that exactly and so i i thought that part of that was an interesting decision again going back to mike brown who has done a beautiful job in this series but i thought they leaned too heavily on terrence davis who is a talented offensive player and the two threes that he hit in the first quarter were massive in terms of the Kings kind of staying in it and getting a little bit of life, but he can't guard Stephen Kerr. And just as we talked about on Saturday about the lessons learned potentially by Monty Williams and Michael Malone in game one of that series, a key element to me of a game seven is to make, I I always refer to this as like making the thing, the thing where it's like the most important element of defending the goal state warriors is defending Stephen Curry and sometimes that's personnel sometimes that's scheme most of the time it's both and I thought from a personnel standpoint it this was worse than I expected from Sacramento there's so many moving parts here and the Warriors did score a bunch of points they put up 120 in the end obviously the offensive rebounding was a, a complete killer in the third but worth noting too that with all the free throws that the Warriors missed in the third quarter and Sacramento missed some too but the Warriors were worse like this should have been probably a blowout earlier than it was like it should have been a 15 point game after three and then obviously sacramento couldn't score again but the reason they went with terrence davis on Steph was because they felt like they needed the offense they felt like they weren't guarding Davion Mitchell he took eight three-point attempts in game five they probably felt like that was more than they really wanted and I mean when the Kings looked bad in this series it was because they couldn't score their half-court offense was not very good and they also obviously leaned into Trey Lyles at center they didn't go back to Alex Len there and they had some pretty damn small lineups too you know the, with Davis Monk Fox like those three guys on the floor together seemed like it was one of Mike Braun's preferred groupings and so I think you know the personnel should they have played Davion more like maybe like especially when Seth like really got going just to like try to give him a different look um I I mean I think that was the thing is that they did mostly the same thing until there were six minutes left and they were down by 17 and then they tried to trap that you know they were going like full court traps at that point so I think strategy I don't know if personnel wise they necessarily should have done something different but in terms of just particularly with how poorly the rest of the warriors were playing um obviously yeah i mean you don't want to give clay thompson a wide open catch and shoot three but when you've got draymond and looney on the floor together to let staff like like we never saw a switch double in this entire series and predict, even when it was late clock, right? So if switch double, usually that you'll go to that when the, a perimeter player that probably can't handle stuff like Keegan Murray, who got completely lit up by stuff in this series and stuff was trying to seek him out every time. So we never saw that tactic tried once. Like, I, I think they were a little bit too one note, you know, or they could have trapped when they tried to go after Murray. Like they just gave that switch up basically anytime Steph wanted it. And, you know, we didn't see that got them, you know, coming over into the strong side zone to deter the drive and force them to throw it to the weak side or something like that like we didn't we didn't see great loading of help which i think you could if steph curry was going to iso like this 
you know, they should have probably tried to say, okay, we're not going to let him just like put you in the mix, put you in the mix, put you in the mix over and over again, and then like get you, like cross you over and then get a blow by, right? We just said, hey, you know what? We're going to try to force him right because he likes, so he can't shoot that step back. And we're going to try to like get someone loaded to him early and force him to get off the ball early. And the other thing too is, I mean, it was such a great tactic by the Warriors to do this. You you talked about it, how Steph wasn't turning it over. Well, if you're just going to isolate all the time or just run a one pick and roll in one action and then Steph's just going to go, that really cuts down for your potential to turn it over. And that obviously is one of the big things that the Kings relied on in the series. So if you're forcing them to make more passes, hey, you're not necessarily getting stops anyway. So at least if you make them score by making a bunch of passes like maybe you'll get some turnovers as you're not getting stops uh so that was uh i i I think you know a little more davion would have been good like i i liked the way they used davion to just be like okay we're he's gonna guard jordan pool and just completely shut off jordan pool uh who can't do anything against him but i thought they could have given him a little bit more and just tried some way to get the ball out of steph's hands when it just obviously wasn't working uh, at that point but i I think ultimately though they yeah they had to do the offense so i think i like personnel wise i kind of understand why they did what they did because they couldn't score like that was their biggest problem i understand it i just think at, at a certain point you yeah. adapt to you adapt to it there and like you i don't want to because this will come up more in the playoffs the idea of using a defense first guard to shut off the water for a second unit is a great idea it's also a, a natural reason why the rick carlisle energizer bunny multiple ball handler second units should be even more used than they are right now is that it takes that away but yeah with the non there there were some really actually i might as well just hit this thread now because it's not as important yeah. in this way than it would have been steve kerr was very aggressive making sure in the early part of the game that stephen curry had enough rest he would have played 40 minutes had the game been competitive enough that he needed to but Kerr also had multiple stretches. I think it was three stretches in the first half where Curry and Draymond were out at the same time. And the first one of those I thought was really fascinating because the Warriors offense was horrendous during that stretch. They only scored three points. It was a Moses Moody catch and shoot three. It was about three minutes that they were both out. And then it was a stoppage in play a timeout or something like that. And they brought him back in. But Sacramento only scored four points because they missed a couple of threes. And so it was the idea of like, it, it seemed to me like it was something where the Warriors got, they were fortunate that they had a worse run of play, but they weren't affected too much on the score line. And having Davion out there for some of those minutes, it just ended. And I mean, you know, Curry ended up being plus 25 in a game the team won by 20. So they were negative five in the time he didn't play. But that could have been worse than negative five. It was just a, a tactical wrinkle that I found not only interesting, but potentially now relevant for the next round. Yeah, and they just kind of managed to get through it. Like there was another one where Looney got a, an and one put back when they had one of their bad lineups on the floor as well. Um, I guess we should... I kind of want to go through chronologically here with just some of the observations because I think that really tells the story of this game that if you look at the final score being 120 to 100, you kind of lose. I think, and both of us were in the arena and I mean, to me, and you you were the one who was favoring the the Kings after game four, even it didn't feel like the Warriors were going to win this basketball game at halftime. Would you agree with that? I mean, it's always possible with them because of the talent that they have and they, they have stuff and they can turn up their defense, but it felt like the Kings were significantly outplayed. Particularly there was, I thought it was really important in the first half that the Kings got into the bonus with six thirty remaining Looney actually committed. What are really? the early- you, you, you think that's important getting into the bonus early? I 
Vaguely. I'm vaguely. glad you and come around on that. Yeah. Looney, I mean, you know me first for you know, <laughs> second and fourth quarters. Um, Looney commits an over the backbreaker with 630 left that produces free throws in, in the half. And Sacramento, yeah, they were, I, I thought they had I thought they had the run to play overall, not dramatically so, but I thought that they were they were the better team in that first half. And it was notable for Sacramento that their jump shooting was mostly there. They they missed some early. Both teams were tight at the start. Also, actually, I just mentioned this in passing. Both teams missed a ton of free throws in this game seven. The Warriors were 19 of 30. So that's 11 misses. The Kings were 16 of 27. That's nine. That's, that's sorry. That's 11 misses as well. So both teams hovering in the like high 50s, low 60s in terms of free throw percentage was was striking but yeah i thought that the sabonis had some nice stretches defensively thought that he he did what he did well generally there i want to talk about his offense but we'll save that for later uh De'Aaron fox had five assists and a couple of those were absolute beauties including one to the opposite corner for trey lyles i tweeted i retweeted mo tequila on the video um basically it looked like the possession was dead in the water then somehow trey he sees trey lyles and gets the ball there and lyles hits that three and so yeah i, I think sacramento played they played pretty well in the first half other than the jitters that both teams dealt with Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets, and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. Yeah, obviously the Kings laid a big punch in game six with some of their adjustments that we talked about, like Lyles at center going to more Terrence Davis. And the Warriors did have some things to attack what they're doing early. You know, they started off actually by shorting the pick and roll a couple of times, like Steph getting off the ball early, then finding Looney going right down the middle for a dunk because they put two on the ball and Steph. Kings kind of got wise to that after a couple of times. Sabonis gave a much better effort getting back into the lane on after the uh, initial putting two on the ball in pick and roll. And the Warriors kind of went away from 
from that uh, later on in the game uh but Kerr also made sure to get Gary Payton the second in on Malik Monk and it certainly was a roller coaster experience with Gary Payton in this game he had four blocked shots four fouls he actually ended up negative 13 in 16 minutes uh but he did anytime someone tried to go at him one-on-one except maybe one fox drive where he got called for a foul like they just got completely like either threw up something that was just useless or got blocked he had like this one close out in the corner that uh, blocked a three-pointer on a fast break by herder who's six eight by the way and but then also he made a, a bunch of mistakes missed a layup as well so it was they definitely got something out of him but it was a pretty wild ride from him. Moses Moody actually, again, was just in the rotation above guys like Kaminga. In fact, even above DiVincenzo, uh, Peyton kind of took his place. But it was important to get Peyton in so that Monk wasn't going to just kill them the way he did. And I think all three of the Kings' victories in the series, Monk was fantastic, other than making comments that the Warriors were old and that they were going to run him out of the gym, which apparently uh, made it into the Warriors' locker. Um, I Yeah, go ahead. So, it was... Uh, Bron- it was- yeah. Good. It was a weird Clay Thompson game. Um, he, I, Kerr praised Clay's defense, and I thought he did a, did a solid job overall. That's it, in also- the second half, he they put him on Monk when they were going with their their best lineup, uh, their starting lineup, and I thought he did do well, uh, like kind of getting over screens in that matchup, which you would you would think he'd be a little too slow for that. He, he did do a good job. Did do a good job. Uh, Thompson four of nineteen from the field, two of ten from three, two of nine from two. Took some aggressive threes and twos. That is a part of the kind of late series clay thing is that he takes a lot of shots of questionable providence and they sometimes go in like well i mean they 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 desperately needed him because they played pool absolutely as little as possible (laughs) and and appropriately and appropriately so i mean he had a couple of just doozies that his first shot was his worst shot where he went at like a no hoper a no hoper drive flailed trying to get the foul and then it led to a five on four fast break that sacramento scored on pretty easily and so, but for Thompson, like a, a small play that I had in my notes, because what I do sometimes in games like this, my notes are plays that I wouldn't remember otherwise, was happened to be on our side of the floor. There was a late, a late situation. Kings were, Kings were up three. And this was one of those indications that the Warriors were tired. And uh, I can't remember who missed the shot. Somebody missed a shot and the ball was bouncing largely towards Clay, but sort of like a wide receiver who needs to move towards a, a softly thrown ball to ensure that they're the one who gets it. Clay just kind of waited for it. And I think it was Sabonis was just took a step in front of him, got it. And then the Kings got two points. And so it's like those sorts of small things, you know, if this game had gone differently in the second half, could have mattered. And Thompson's shot, you know, it wasn't all the way there. And as, as Kerr noted and everything else, he brought value on the other end. And then the other part of that with Clay is even if he's not making shots at the volume that he would like, that the Warriors would like, he provides so much spacing because the opponent is not going to help off it. And so that was a, a key part, you know, having him out there of the Warriors being successful driving. You don't have to put him in the strong side corner to make sure that the Kings guard him because they will guard him wherever he is. Yeah, having him on the backside of their pick and rolls does make the rotations really difficult for the other team. A couple other things that Kerr went to, he made sure that when it was Lyles at center for the Kings, that he had his rotation set up that Draymond Green would be out there at center opposite that, 
because that was really a lineup where with Looney trying to go against Lyles at center, they really got beat up in game six. So that was kind of the the second mover advantage there. And, and I think, again, for Mike Brown, he probably should have had just like, and again, it's tough to say this in a game seven, but should have had like a couple more wrinkles in his pocket there for things to try rotationally that maybe might have thrown the Warriors off. Well, a, because, a because we, we saw throughout the series that the Warriors weren't great at in-game adjustments to those wrinkles. And so if they had had one or two, it could have, it could have theoretically not led to a response. Uh, late first quarter, the Kings really heated up, hit four of five threes in a row to close the quarter, although it was very similar to what took place in game five when they were eight of 12 in the first quarter and then everything just completely dried up for them. After that, they finished 12 of 47, but the shot chart from three was much more in favor of the Warriors than it was in that game six when, remember, the Kings were nine of 18, 18 corner threes in game six, and a lot of those obviously came off of transition, which the Warriors pretty much shut off, particularly in the second half in this one, Uh, and Sacramento only got up seven corner threes in this one. Warriors actually got up 13 and probably could have actually made more of them like Wiggins and Clay missed a bunch of, of pretty good open ones. A few of those were Draymond, which, you know, they're probably okay with him taking. But I still felt at the end of the second, like the Warriors were just stalling at every second that they could to just like any fast break. They weren't really, like or a defensive rebound, they weren't pushing it. They were crossing the timeline with 16.1 in the shot clock and just a ton of just like holding the ball, catching their breath. And I was like, man, like, these guys are exhausted. Like the Kings ran reasonably well in the first half they're up to it at halftime and you felt like man the kings are gonna have the energy here they're gonna run them out of the building in the second i felt like the kings really should have tried to hit the offensive glass as hard as they could they got a monk put back at the end of the third they got a herder a couple of free throws but their guard should they should have been sending like four guys to the offensive glass just because the warriors were not going to push the ball under any circumstances and instead in that fateful third quarter the warriors got 15 offensive rebounds in one quarter Danny incredible and they had significantly more offensive rebounds than the Kings had defensive rebounds during that quarter um let me see actually I didn't try to pull this before we started recording the um because we can I think I can get this through advanced stats there um yeah so they had a 65.2 offensive rebound rate in the third quarter that's pretty good yeah, and I mean, it, it would have been even more of a blowout if uh, the Warriors had hit more free throws like Thompson missed two. I, I mean, I think they had, I want to say they had four separate trips to the foul line in which they missed both. I think like Wiggins had two, Looney had one, and Clay had one. They also quarter. missed a ton of a ton of layups in that quarter as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they start off, I, I thought that Mike Brown clearly didn't believe that Harrison Barnes was his best option at power four, but he did start him in the third and the Warriors really kind of jumped on him early third and got out to a six to eight point lead that they really wouldn't and part of that was the offensive rebounding but part of it also was Fox having to start out in that matchup guarding Curry they also didn't have Monk who is really their second best offensive player in this series out there he doesn't come in until there's six minutes left in the quarter and now it is tough I, I so you're good I mean I guess their best lineup was Fox Monk Davis 
Murray and Sabonis would have been like their best guys. I mean, that is a really small group and, you know, maybe not surprising that you're going to struggle to rebound with a group like that. And Harrison Barnes has never been the greatest defensive rebounder either. And Murray is like only okay. And Sabonis had his hands full with Looney and he, he ultimately got dominated. I think at one point Looney had nine offensive rebounds and Sabonis had three defensive rebounds in the game. And that's, that's up a bunch the, of fouls on the full, too. the full, Jared Allen slash Mitchell Robinson. Yeah. And now what the scheme was, obviously, was Sabonis will box out Looney and then the other guys go get the rebound. And even when Sabonis had Looney boxed out, Looney was able just in the right spot. I mean, he's talked about it before that he just, he really makes a science of knowing where certain teammates are likely to miss. And I mean, you, as you see it, and he says beyond that, he doesn't want to talk about it, obviously, because that's information that he has that probably his opponents don't. But there's so many of these loony rebounds where he's, he'll be like 10 feet away from the basket in theory boxed out and yet the ball will like bounce just over the guy boxing him out's head right to him 10 feet from the basket like it's it happens often enough that you think there must be something to the idea of just like Looney knows that when these guys miss Dennis Rodman used to do that too most of the great rebounders do uh particularly guys who don't have a ton of size like Looney or, or Rodman but do maybe have more mobility so I think he just has it kind of dialed in of like here's where the rebound is going to go with, with these guys and just gets to that spot even though it may not appear to be the most valuable real estate in the world um I, you brought up Sabonis I wanted to talk about something else and this the numbers weren't as striking as I as I wanted I asked uh Dan to pull this and but it was still interesting I think it bears because I had noticed something with this during the game so Demontis Sabonis took 16 shots from the field um I think one of the ones that was in maybe because uh, because Dan's list has 17 there might have been something that got got in the play-by-play that got crossed up roughly half of those were around the basket so you know and that's and that rate is is fine but what I noticed was the shots that were not around the basket seemed further out in game seven than they were early in the series and I think that there is something to that because the I brought up that there were eight around the basket also 12 feet 16 feet 17 feet 19 feet 19 feet 26 and so those are all pretty deep out. And, you know, there's this idea over the years, it's come up in the context of a lot of different players where taking a 10 footer, taking a five footer and taking a 15 footer are very different things with very different success rates. And Sabonis, his shots that weren't around the basket being a little bit further out, I think that was a part uh, he was 0 for 3 in the upper paint. Um, if you want to think about it this way, 2 for 7 on twos that were not at the basket and 2 for 8 on overall field goal attempts that were not around the basket, that they were further out and they're harder to make. And the Warriors were conceding them and he was taking them and to an extent, like you have to, you know, keeping them honest and all that stuff. But I thought that was really telling. Yeah, it is best offensive half of the series was 16 points and got a lot of those obviously off of passes or, or running the floor and it's not like that many of those were self-created he hit a couple of those uh short rangers or i should say more mid-rangers that you were talking about in the first um but i i and sabonis obviously like if he could have been a more reliable one-on-one scoring option i thought actually maybe one thing they could have explored was that the warriors were willing to switch andrew wiggins onto him and he got one nice post up on him for a foul but i think that maybe as particularly as much as they're struggling they could have looked back to that but the other thing i it really surprised me they didn't go to and again we don't know like maybe fox had somewhat of a setback with his finger i mean it was it was such a weird injury where it's like he would have these times where he like oh man that's a terrible turnover like or 
a terrible miss like the finger must be bothering him and you know maybe it's the kind of thing where he would just like oddly feel pain and like and just wouldn't be able to control it or it just hit his hand in a certain spot he would lose it or something but I and De'Aaron Fox was awful in this game I mean he took 10 three-pointers made three of them that's kind of about where he's been you know those are generally going to be above the break shots where I mean that's not he well, can make that shot if he's just being given it but that's not what scares you about his game and I really thought that the Kings should have gone more to the Fox Sabonis pick and roll than they did because come on Looney and it dropped coverage like that they hurt that in this series and I, I it just surprised me that they didn't go to that that Fox was really invisible through like very large swaths of this game a big part of that of course is that he couldn't get out in transition because they couldn't get a rebound and uh or they couldn't force a turnover and that's obviously where fox and the kings in general are most dangerous same thing with monk too but i i thought there were times in this series where it seemed like darren fox was unstoppable in the half court and was just a major problem schematically for the warriors and you just didn't feel that at all in this game a lot of attention will be and, and i mean should be on his point guard counterpart because curry had one of the best playoff game sevens we've ever seen i wanted to give De'Aaron fox's line just for the second half of this game eight points on two of nine from the field one of four on twos one of five on threes did get to the line four times made three of those four one assist four turnovers three fouls negative 21 yeah i do wish he hadn't suffered that finger injury and that we could have seen him at his absolute best uh, in this game seven but that was not the case uh, obviously and and and, and just yeah. as a stray note because you and i were both in the interview room for golden state after the game I thought it was notable and interesting that Draymond Green heaped praise on De'Aaron Fox, said that he was, you know, cut from that cloth and that when Draymond was reminded of a series years ago against the Clippers where they lost in a round one game seven and distinctly mentioned him as the like the head of the snake for the players and praised Mike Brown, of course, as the head of the snake for the coaches. Distinctly did not mention another another player that you could argue was the head of the stake for the Kings, but considering their personal animosity, not a huge surprise. Well, also considering reality, it's not a huge surprise. Also true. <laughs> uh, and particularly in this series when Sabonis couldn't do anything one-on-one against Looney or Draymond, really. He scored on them like maybe like three or four times one-on-one in the, the whole series. So um, anything else that really like kind of sticks out to you from, from this? And I have a couple smaller notes and I also kind of want to just talk about the kings and this season put put that in perspective a little bit there were some some good moments from keegan murray as a driver like his two-point game is something that i'm excited to see develop over the next couple of years and like i am i've been at the belief for a long stretch of the year and i really like the film on keegan murray as well that he is going to be a starter in the league for a long time I, you know, he, he did get lit up by Stephen Curry. Congratulations, you're joining a very, a very large group, many of whom are illustrious. But offensively, I think that his game fits in with a lot of different types of teams, and this Kings team is most certainly among them. And then defensively, I think he does some things right. And I think Murray could be a part, and we saw it at times in this series, be a part, a successful part of a stronger overall defense. Like, I don't think he's, we, we talk a lot about how power forwards and Keegan Murray bounces between power and small forward because of his partnership with Harrison Barnes in the starting five. But I, 
I really like his game. Yeah, and we saw there was a time in the third where him like getting to the foul line and making shots actually was kind of keeping them in it and certainly utilizing him as more of a wing score is something that I think they're going to need to explore very heavily in the future to have a, a few other gears that they can attack with, particularly in the half court. Uh, and so that's really encouraging. Obviously, he got targeted defensively, but there's also not a lot of Steph Curry's out there. You know, be interested to see in a different playoff series what that would look like for him. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about before we, we kind of hit on this King season, <laughs> the Warriors did, I mean, this is, something that they broke out in these playoffs i haven't seen this much around the league but the math does kind of like it is this double team in a last shot of the quarter situation and they definitely it seemed like they gave up a wide open three out of that every time but they also did it with 14 seconds left in the quarter and this time they gave up a wide open three i think it was to terrence davis at the end of the third they're up nine monk flies in incredible tip rebound and one cuts it to six and you're like go out it's after the warriors had this insane quarter with 15 offensive rebounds the kings were awful like this is maybe a chance for them to strike if the the warriors get tired at the end and then clay comes down uh gets a, a beautiful play call from kerr where they run the pick and roll of stuff double team draymond set the screen which he didn't do that much of for stuff and then they've run this over the years many times then draymond sprints out of that goes and gets clay off a screen and clay hits the three gets the and one for a foul puts them back up 10 going into the fourth i mean that was one of the biggest plays of the game and then the kings don't score at all for basically the first four minutes of the fourth as steph is like i think even during that period steph only had two field goals himself and that was it for the Warriors. but that four zero like four minute period at the start of the fourth really just completely took the air out of the building at that point and well i mean Nate- I'll phrase it differently. The Kings scored once in the first five and a half minutes of the fourth quarter. Yeah, and they definitely missed some open threes. They're two of 22 on threes in the second half. And guys like Herter, Barnes had a wide open corner three during that stretch. Like, there are a lot of guys who would love to have him back. And Mike Braun said it during the this series that, like, yeah, there is a difference. Even Fox said it during his presser that there is a difference between making some of these shots in a playoff setting in a game seven versus game 15. 50 or game 70 or game 20 i think was his quote i want to obviously an amazing season for the kings we'll roll through that a little bit but i think we can go back to and i think in some ways this is all the more painful because of how good the kings looked at times in this series of the king's decision to not play their guys on the final friday of the regular season in a decision that basically ensured that they were going to get the warriors in this series had they won that game which no guarantee they would have won had they played fox and sabonis but i mean they would have had a pretty good chance against regular season warriors without andrew wiggins but they elected not to play their guys they had to have known that this was the likely result of that they would have had a decent chance of it being either the clippers or probably the lakers would have been who they would play would have played because the lakers are the tiebreaker now lakers played pretty well against memphis as well memphis essentially is a better team than sacramento although i'm not sure that this version of memphis was i don't think that i don't think they were for the record no, I, and I think also just from a matchup standpoint, the Kings would have been much more difficult for the Lakers to deal. But maybe that's just they're like, hey, we'd rather play the Warriors than than the Lakers. That's I mean, I don't. It's still the Warriors, right? Like they won the championship last year. Like this Lakers team is pretty good, but like you know, LeBron is. I mean, obviously, we'll talk more about that series probably tomorrow, but. Uh, 
I think it's that's also kind of hindsight to say that you obviously like the Lakers are really good and they were obviously going to beat Memphis. Memphis was favored in that series. So, um, so, you know, that, that was, they made that decision. And I, I mean, I probably wouldn't have wanted to set myself up to play Steph Curry <laughs> in the first round. And, the, and while they had a, an amazing effort in the series, ultimately they fell short. And maybe part of that was because of that decision. That's one of those ones that we're going to remember for a while, like the Bucks not even trying to get the two seed last year. And obviously the Daniel Toro game, like some of these late seeding quandaries or decisions that end up really making a difference. And this wasn't one where it's like, oh yeah, you, you should have intentionally lost the game. Like the Clippers probably should have against the Suns. But this, this is one where like, hey, if you would have competed a little bit harder, that actually would have been the right decision. But I guess they felt like their guys were fatigued and they wanted to rest them or whatever. But um, what do you think now of the Kings and this season and how you're feeling about them as like a possible like true contender going forward? I'm of two minds. I, I think that the playoffs are clarifying in a way that the regular season is not. And you get to see these players face all sorts of different challenges than they do in the regular season. And the Warriors are a distinct challenge compared to other teams and the, the, some of the rotations and the guys they have, the unusual strengths and weaknesses. I thought that a lot of Kings did well. And, and it was interesting. Draymond talked about this after the game. And, like, and he meant it in a very different way than I'm about to use it. But like you, you lose respect for a lot more players than you gain respect for in the postseason experience. That, that's often a part of it. And I thought that a lot of those Kings did well. I thought De'Aaron Fox did really well. Malik Monk had a wonderful series overall. Sabonis had some of his best defensive play overall, though I think I will talk about some of his potential shortcomings. Keegan Murray, I thought especially for a rookie, had some nice moments. And Mike Brown had an extremely impressive series, helped by having an intense familiarity with the Warriors. But the overall philosophy and the buy-in that he had from his players, that bodes really well so all those things like this is a regular season you can build on this is a postseason that you can build on for sacramento even though they did not advance beyond this round De'Aaron fox is 25 i think he's going to have some really bright days ahead of him there are a couple of challenges if we're going to talk about sacramento moving from the like consistently interesting area where i think i think they're already there like i don't think that is a a situation where oh they lost in the first round they're the, they're the next utah jazz or anything like that no i, I think sacramento can they can put a charge into teams and there are plenty of ways that they can get better. However, there is a big margin between feisty and interesting and like if we're going to talk about winning a conference winning a championship and part of that is best player on the floor part of that is counter punches and like the the overall talent level and my instinct is if demontis simonis is your center you will you could have a very good regular season offense you can have some good regular season and postseason defensive moments he had a far better series defensively than i anticipated but if we're talking about this rare fighter winning three or four series in the same postseason i am skeptical that that you could do that you're going to face a variety of opponents with a variety of different ways that they will attack you and they're all going to be talented teams because that's why they're there in the first place so i see sacramento as a team that will be in the conversation for a while as long as they can keep this team together but they're going to run into something that happens all the time and I think they're at a, a weaker spot right now than like let's say Memphis was last year because of John, Jaron, and Bain and all that like I, th- I like Memphis's top top group better than I like Sacramento's is when you don't when you've already kind of spent the key part of your flexibility 
adding players who are good enough to supplant the guys that you already have is very difficult to do. It's internal improvement. It's drafting really well. It's recruiting the right guys to sign. But you, you're not doing that with max cap space. You're not doing that with a top five pick because you're too good for both of those things. You're too expensive for both those things. So I would love to be wrong, and I think their future is bright. But I think that talking about them as a title team right now, knowing what we know right now, that I think does them a disservice. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, Steve Kerr said he, he, he characterized them as a contender. And obviously, if you're the Golden State Warriors and you have a series like this against them, you're going to think, well, hey, we're a contender and we really struggle to beat them. So they're a contender. And I'm not sure whether that's true or not. I'm not sure whether this is a situation where the Kings actually like matched up really well with the Warriors because of the fact that the Warriors will turn it over a fair amount because of their transition game and the Warriors kind of being an older team at this point in time and obviously the familiarity that Mike Brown has with them I I definitely feel as though Sacramento punched above their weight in this series but you know then again I mean maybe the Warriors are going to just lose the Lakers or get swept by the Nuggets or something and then I'll be like ah you know but this Warriors team actually wasn't that good in the end I I don't think that that's the case I think that this was just a really great series that Sacramento played and they obviously had home court which, which helped too but you do I mean they have have a lot of strengths but they are like pretty dependent on transition you know their half court offense was not good in this series you'd think they could shoot the ball better though i mean that's something they'll they'll really wish that they had been able to do more and but you know kind of the sabonis handoff stuff like how how well can that work if sabonis can't score one-on-one you kind of run out of stuff that you can do in the half court other than fox and monk driving to the basket um obviously they also were really healthy this year but i think they'll as long as they're healthy they should continue to be you know a high 40s maybe 50 win type of team and obviously you mentioned how young they are like a a lot of these guys can get better assuming they can re-sign some of their free agents also or or get some other supplemental pieces but they do they still do have a lot of weak like we're talking about their best lineup and maybe they would have a different best lineup against a team that didn't include steph curry but their best lineups were include like three small guards and a center who doesn't protect the room it's they can be a lot better offensively i think and this warriors defense 
is a very good defense, but they also just have a lot of flaws. So yeah, it is hard for me to see them as a championship contender, but you know, I, I just don't really know the answer to like, hey, was this a good matchup for them or were the Warriors like half court defense actually a pretty good matchup against them and they could have really smoked another team's defense. Like that's, that's something I'm looking forward to finding out hopefully uh, in future years. It is kind of remarkable to think about, I mean, when you consider all of the injuries and everything else that happened this year to, to theoretically pencil in not only another team that we expect to make the playoffs in the West the next few years, but a young team that could continue to improve. And the, it's going to be, it's going to be another bloodbath next year in the West. Yeah, I got two more things actually before we move on to New York and Miami. One is remember when it was like, oh man, the East is that's where it's at, man. Like the three best teams in the league might be in the East. Obviously, Milwaukee is out now, and they were apparently a bit of a paper tiger. I mean, Jimmy Butler is playing at an all world level to be sure, but now Embiid is has gone down, and we'll see whether he's able to play or not. But that's that's not a new thing. Like that happens to him somewhat regularly, unfortunately. Even Boston, you know, their best player is jason tatum but to me he's not a top five player in the nba butler is playing at that level of course the knicks don't really have something like that but and now you look at the western conference look at this fucking star power in this final four i mean jesus christ like now i mean lebron maybe is a little that that name is maybe a little bit bigger than what he is at this point but i mean the lakers still have like lebron and ad that's probably two top 15 players at least of course steph curry is playing again at, at, i mean to be 35 and just put up a playoff game like that is unreal oh and and by the way stephen curry was the best player on the nba champions last year and him doing i mean this is maybe a little bit extreme but like him being a great playoff player again is no surprise should be no surprise to anybody no i mean he had that type of a regular season when he was healthy too there's no reason to think i mean maybe you felt like all right after game six like he's kind of slowing down you didn't have like the absolute greatest game in that game six like the warriors haven't scored incredibly well in the series but like you know he still averaged even after after this 50 burger he averaged 34 points a game in the series uh that that's pretty good and then of course on the other side you've got kd booker is playing at an all-world level right now and then Jokic on the other side and jamal murray MVP. Yeah, I mean, Murray isn't quite in that class, like just as an overall star, although perhaps he will be after this playoff run. But I mean, the talent in that final four is just insane. I, well, I mean, and, you could say, yeah. Oh, and and that, I mean, part of it is just the, the nature of the West this year. But this, the Warriors winning this, good, getting to the point where for the first time in NBA history, ESPN stats and info had it, somebody had tweeted to us even earlier in the week about the possibility. One team of all eight seeds made it. So this is not like the four best records in the West or anything. You could argue it's not even the four most talented teams in the West, though they might be the four teams with the most star power, if we're focusing on that. Yeah, and it's pretty amazing to think that the two-time MVP, who I would have actually voted for him a third time this year, uh, he's not going to get it, it seems like, but that that player, the guy who just won two MVPs in a row right before this one, is probably like the fourth biggest star in this Final Four in the West. I mean, that's that's insane i can't wait for this round and just the the rest of the west playoffs any any matchup that could occur as long as knock on wood like crazy these teams stay relatively healthy any matchup that could occur in the conference finals just gonna monster matchup um in the dunked on era where does this rank for you as a first round series obviously it wasn't close at the end but it was i mean just the back and forth was 
absolutely remarkable for like kings go up to zero warriors wins three straight they're gonna close it out like just the the ups and downs of this series were amazing uh warriors became just the seventh team ever to win game five of a tied 2-2 series lose game six in such a series and then win the game seven such teams were six and 19 in the game seven coming into this one but uh, i mean this has got to be right up there doesn't it it does i'm not as great at remembering these as you the one that comes to mind was at the very beginning of the dunked on era which was that clipper spurs series in 15 which was incredible yeah i think that one was better than this one i mean the I spurs had just won the championship cp rips up his hamstring in game seven and then like hits an incredible game winner like that game is one of the all because neither team made the conference finals that year that time is one of the game is one of like the all-time best game sevens ever i mean that and that series as well was like back and forth there's all sorts of like crazy tactics stuff in that series as well like i still remember all the the 45 pick and roll and like greg popovich going to hack up and uh all of that and there was a lot of star power in that series too that that was a pretty legendary series in terms of first round series and even though the bucks won it or, or lost it in five in that first round those last two games of the bucks heat series were both just like monster monster games um like those are ones that i'm always going to remember they they were but the first three games of that series were not as memorable for me uh denver utah in the bubble sure that was an amazing series it's the bubble so it was a little weird but i mean the denver coming back from 3-1 and murray and mitchell dueling with 50 point games and and obviously like a classic game seven ending in in that series as well trying to jog my memory if there are any other ones that are well nate it's the first it's the first series that you've ever gone to every game right yeah it is actually and this was only the third game seven i've ever been to the only Mm -hmm. other two were in 2016 which were both obviously huge classics warriors now go to three and one in game sevens in the kerr era and they go to seven and two in elimination games in the kerr era also the warriors still have never lost a western conference playoff series with steve kerr as their coach uh okay a couple other like awesome first round series clippers mavs in 21 where the road team won every game of the series until game seven and Kawhi had that ridiculous 45 point game guarding luka in game six the clippers were down 0-2 and down 30 to 11 in game three in dallas at one point in that series Oh, uh, while while you're uh, two other stats that I had in my notes from other people, um, from my former writer Adi Joseph, um, now of CBS, Kevon Looney averaged 18 rebounds over the last five games of this series. That is completely ludicrous. And per Tim Reynolds, and I, I quizzed you on that. I'm not going to do that here. This was the eighth time Stephen Curry, eighth time that a player had 41 or more in a road game seven. And only the second time out of all of those that the that player's team won the game. The other one being Calvin Murray, Calvin Murphy way back in 1981. So those are the only two times that a 40 plus game seven road game seven has ever produced a winner. Yeah, so this was a, quite a trip down men, memory lane to see these 
40 plus point performances in game sevens Steph's was the only one that took place in fewer than 41 minutes KD had the previous high with that 48 in the overtime loss although all 48 came in regulation they did I think it was like 0 for 5 in the overtime uh Sam Jones at home had 47 against Cincinnati in 1963 Dominique of course also had 47 that was the previous high on the road in that classic game that they lost in 1988 uh, at Boston Luca had 45 in that series I just or sorry had 46 in that series I just referenced game seven in 2021 against the Clippers another forgotten performance in an absolute classic game in a loss Kevin Johnson had 46 in 1995 against Houston the Mario Ellie game it's one of the only two road 3-1 comebacks the other of course being Cleveland over Golden State in 2016 LeBron had 45 in game seven in 2008 45 of his team 92 points and that one paul pierce had 41 uh lebron also had 45 for cleveland against indiana that was another great first round series actually in the dunk down era 2018 kind of underrated series charles barkley i think he had 44 and 22 in game seven against seattle in 1993 and another one that there's two other ones that really kind of stick out for me jerry west 42 points in 48 minutes in game seven of the 69 finals which they lost by two at home to boston bill russell's final year that was when i think the inaugural nba finals mvp which west won as a loser so the only player to do that tim duncan had 41 in 2006 a home loss to dallas in overtime that was the mono ginobili foul on dirk Nowitzki's drive to let them tie it up uh after dallas was blowing a a 3-1 lead oh while we're talking about game sevens of the dunk on your this wasn't as prolific from scoring perspective but one of the most weirdly forgotten game performances because his team lost in a game that everyone remembers Draymond Green's 32 15 and 9 in game 7 of the 16 finals yeah oh LeBron played a pretty good game 7 he did <laughs> too, even though he was only 9 to 24 from the field I think that's right that was off the top of my head that's that's terrifying if I actually remember that sometimes I just like go back and look at the box score of that game because it was just such a ridiculous game um okay that's probably about it but I I would say of, of all these series that we're talking about here just to finish that up Celtics Bucks in 2018 was also a, a really good one the last year of the pre-Budenholzer era for the Bucks, and this one is wasn't in the dunked on era but probably the previous best ever first round that comes to mind for me was 2014 when you had six no I'm sorry five seven game series Nets Raptors Pacers Hawks Clippers Warriors that's one so memorable obviously for that was the Donald Sterling series Thunder over the Grizz after being down 3-2 in that series I believe uh Spurs over the Mavs the number one seed they ended up winning the championship got to a game seven and then another series that wasn't a seven gamer ended with Damian Lillard's walk-off buzzer beater in game six so I think that second round or that first round is probably better than this one and this one only had one game seven but I would this might be the second most interesting if not just like the best in terms of the overall gameplay and drama but probably the second most interesting first round ever with all the upsets yeah it's been a lot of fun (laughs) 
All right, now that I've uh, gone down memory lane here, we're allowed to do that. We've been doing this for, this is our ninth playoffs, so I think we're we're allowed to start doing that at this point. Miami draws first blood against the Knicks. Start off with this. What kind of hewed to your expectations and what surprised you in this game? I, I think that one thing that kind of does both in the course, over the course of the contest is New York around the basket. And so in that first half, and it's funny, the way that I experienced this game is I actually, the first time I, I experienced it was listening to the game on Nick's radio because I was driving to Sacramento for game seven. And then I, of course, rewatched it. And the, first of all, radio broadcast, radio broadcasting of basketball is ludicrously hard and they do a very good job. But in that first half, the Knicks had 40 points in the paint, 20 of 24 shots. They didn't get to the line a ton in part because they were just making, they were making attempts and there wasn't as much there. That 40 points went down to 22 in the second half. And that was a huge part of what led to Miami's success and eventually coming back and I, and I thought like there was this element it's funny I was watching I was listening to the Knicks feed and they were talking about basically like the what they need to do is just play the play the same way and I was just I, I you know it was one of those games that I thought if I was watching it live based on the way they'd been describing it I'm like oh this is going to be Miami's going to have a huge run burst because when you when you play really well and you're only up five and the other team is as talented as the Heat are that generally doesn't go well for you. Yeah, and surely the Knicks 7 of 34 three-point shooting, 12 of 20 from the foul line are things that will stick in Tom Thibodeau's craw for sure. And but it's and not like the Heat had this unbelievable shooting performance either. Sure, especially uh, by their standards. No, uh, not by by their recent standards. And Jimmy Butler didn't have the type of monster game that we thought that he would. And obviously, we'll talk about his ankle sprain at the end here. But I think that was one thing that did huge expectations was that Tom Thibodeau was not going to just let him isolate, let him get off. And particularly in pick and roll, they had Mitchell Robinson up to the level of the ball early in the game. They weren't going to let Jimmy turn the corner, get downhill, and draw fouls on them. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Like the Knicks got up a lot of threes. Like Obi Toppin took 11 three pointers. I mean, that was the other thing that I, I thought the Heat, you could you knew what they were, their plan was going to be. We're going to give a lot of help from our guards at the nail. And if you want to get a pass to an Obi Toppin or something for an above the break three or Josh Hart, we are going to gap the fuck off of Josh Hart every single time with the with our guards that are willing even to switch Max Struess onto Brunson because then they had, you know, it was usually Jimmy started on Brunson or if it was Gabe Vincent on him, then that guy would basically just stand at the free throw line while Brunson tried to isolate on Max Struess, but they would do that without actually double teaming. And they're like, all right, you want to throw it to Obi Toppin or throw it to Josh Hart up here? Yeah, go ahead. You know, we'll close out uh, or we'll, you know, we just trust our guards to be able to do that. And that's something that the Heat drill relentlessly. And we saw it on that last play of the Bucks series when Budenholzer elected not to call timeout and the Heat just kind of swallowed up some of those openings up top. And it, they did a pretty good job with that in the second half in the first half as you mentioned they were getting into the paint and scoring more easily than might have been expected so it kind of it got there eventually but new york was uh really able to attack the paint more than i would have expected early on two of the prominent players in that paint attack were rj barrett and obi toppin you brought up toppin three-point 
shooting, but I thought he was also he also even though he only took four shots in the two from two point range, I thought that he helped put some of that pressure around the basket. But RJ Barrett, I mean, nine of fifteen on twos got to the line eight times, had some really nice passes, including some lobs to Rob to Rob Mitchell Robinson. I thought he played a much better offensive game than I anticipated, and he it wasn't just the first half. I mean, he had 13 in the first, 13 in the second. It was just it was very first quarter dominant, and then quiet in the second, but then had a pretty solid second half overall. Yeah, and he's going to have a matchup that he probably thinks he can take advantage of here. He was only one of five from three, but he's going to have Gabe Vincent on him a lot of the time. If they're going to put Butler on Jalen Brunson, which they did for a reasonable amount, you, I'll credit you for predicting that that was going to happen i thought they'd kind of hold him back a little bit more obviously randall didn't play i don't think we mentioned that yet but i presume most of you guys know that already but yeah barrett has that size advantage they run some nice plays to get him into the lane going to his left hand and he's not going to just blow by guys necessarily but he can use his body to get shots off in the lane reasonably well what about the the rebounding battle we saw the knicks dominate on the offensive glass in the first round against the Cavs and Cleveland. I this is something I brought up in the preview that Cleveland is a much worse defensive rebounding team overall than the Heat are. And I thought that New York did a good job. You know, 31% offensive rebound rate is nothing to sneeze at. And they were extremely inefficient at converting those. They had a 57 offensive re- or 57 offensive rating off of those second chance opportunities. That's not great. But for me, the most indelible part of the rebounding battle was actually what followed some of the heat defensive rebounds in that third quarter. And that was the triumphant return of the Kevin Kevin Love outlet pass. Yeah, Love only played 16 minutes in the end but yeah he had three assists in a row and one of them might have been for a foul but he just gunning these outlet passes 75 feet butler leaking out and obviously you got to get a defensive rebound to do that which he's pretty good at and he's two of five from three again only 60 minutes but still his skills are diminished but it does feel like the heat are maximizing the skills that he does have more than we've seen really since he was in minnesota like there was a lot of the heat or the Cavs when LeBron was there like you're not going to run a lot of motion stuff and off ball stuff like that LeBron's going to just dominate the ball and he'll just kill the other team and Love was mostly asked to space out or or post up against mismatches they didn't use his passing a ton uh, or like his movement shooting a ton necessarily but uh, even at, at this age I think he's 34 now like he does have these skills and obviously the Cavs taking him out of the rotation it was uh, premature especially because he had that that thumb issue issue um yeah and butler you know again just for him to get like three looks either baskets or fouls off of just leak outs in the third quarter like that's another thing that's got to just like royal tom thibodeau's stomach and butler also had four offensive rebounds it had like a, a another bucket where they tried to front him in the post and they just lobbed it over to him as well that was when the heat went with love at center late in the first quarter so even though butler didn't have like this dominating individual creation game he's just he's going to score because he just has these ways of beating you that aren't just okay we're locked in like giving the ball like how are we going to deal with this it's like there's always he's always finding some way to beat you like he never stops and it's pretty impressive um a couple other things that i thought were pretty interesting they tried to post up jimmy on josh hart and hart actually got two stops on him like didn't really get moved so that was that's interesting uh, hart was the main matchup ended up playing 43 minutes as did butler in this game yeah quentin uh, grimes who yeah. actually guarded 
Butler a lot in the regular season games, only played 10 minutes coming back from his contused shoulder. Um, the Knicks tried to kind of hide Jalen Brunson on Max Struess a fair amount of the time. He didn't spend a ton of time going after Brunson. That's something that they might look at at some point in this series, as J.B. Bickerstaff did as well. When Miami went with Love at center, which they didn't do too much, I thought that the Knicks kind of blew it by putting Mitchell Robinson on Love rather than trying to put him on Caleb Martin instead and trying to switch some of those Love actions. Manuel quickly still just not really having much of an impact in these playoffs. Three of nine from the field uh, for nine points. Kyle Lowry came through big at the end, particularly once Jimmy Butler sprained his ankle. He got a couple of buckets in pick and roll as Butler was just like hanging out in the corner. 18 points for Lowry and they closed it out with Vincent and Lowry together. A a very small but stout uh, defensive backcourt. I also thought that in the fourth quarter in particular, you just felt Miami's overall intelligence and experience edge of just the number of just kind of grifty bullshit fouls that are still fouls that guys like Butler and Lowry were able to draw and I thought that Jalen Brunson for his part was kind of trying to draw fouls like that but the Heat weren't going for it Brunson only got to the line for four free throws and I thought on a lot of his plays in the second half Brunson was like try to draw the foul first you know he would like he'd drive then he'd try to like extend his arms out and go through somebody's arms and then the Heat wouldn't go for it and then you make when you bring the ball up like that you make actually making the shot much more difficult if you don't actually get the call i thought brunson was just call hunting a little more than he should have been to just try to make the shot and obviously he was miserable for three uh at oh for seven and five turnovers which is very uncharacteristic him to have that many turnovers i'm happy you brought up lowry he also had a couple of big defensive plays blocks and steals over the course of this game had a steal late that was that pretty much solidified the outcome for miami and Cody Martin also, or sorry, Caleb Martin also had a had an amazing block too. He just kind of flew out of nowhere. I'm trying to remember who he got on that play, but it was it was fantastic. He he had a couple of nice moments, and then we, you know, at times during these playoffs, Spolstra, particularly after the Tyler Hero injury, has had to lean more on guys that we didn't necessarily expect. And like Duncan Robinson did exactly what you need. He took a bunch of threes in 13 minutes. He just didn't make any of those. So I, I expect to see that swing a little bit. And then Martin played 31 minutes. And I thought he did a good job. Let's see. What else did I have? Oh, what did you think of Bam? We haven't really talked about him much. Yeah, I thought he was much better in the second half. And he gave them enough from that kind of upper paint area against Robinson, who is tough of a matchup as Robinson could be. He still isn't as good as Brooke Lopez is at kind of some of those surprise high standing reach contests. So I, I think Bam probably found the going a little bit easier. It wasn't, you know, they didn't run a ton through him or anything like that. I thought defensively in the second second half in particular he looked really good there's one possession where rj barrett i think was going up against vincent and was trying to get all the way to the rim and it was basically kind of like a two-on-two on the left side of the floor barrett is getting near the elbow area wants to turn the corner on vincent but bam is kind of showing just enough to deter barrett and then it, the moment barrett picked up his dribble to shoot the ball from mid-range bam just sprints back to mitchell robinson checks him out and they ended up forcing a miss and getting the defense a rebound so he was he did one of his better jobs i thought as just more of a conventional help defender in this game and maybe part of why they gave up so many point paint points in the first was because he was a little bit worried about box 
boxing out uh, Mitchell Robinson and Robinson did have five offensive board but it, that was that ended up being manageable for Miami New York only had 12 and Miami had 10 so there was a, a relative draw in that category and then the Heat also just only turning it over eight times so they really ended up pretty much winning the possession battle and they really won the free throw battle uh, as well getting 11 more points from the line so uh, Miami e- even though the Knicks were so much better from two in this game than Miami was Miami basically won every other category yeah and, and I mean we'll see how that continues moving forward um for me I think the next thing we have to talk about is where things go for Jimmy Butler um Jeff Stotts tweeted a little bit about this that Butler has had a history of right ankle sprains and there are six different occasions where Butler has sprained his right ankle and didn't miss any time at all this I mean this one seemed worse than definitely so I don't want to have an encyclopedic knowledge of Jimmy Butler's ankle sprains um but notably Butler has never missed more than three consecutive games and there are always two parts of this one is how much time are you out but then the second part is how long is it until you're right and I winning this game means I think Miami's going to be definitely more judicious with him in game two and potentially in game three as well ankle sprains are really unpredictable that's what Spo said after the game Butler did stay and he had gotten fouled if you haven't seen the play he's driving right Josh Hart flops trying to he's like kind of on the side of him and butler lowered his shoulder like Hart wasn't really even in front of him but Hart goes down and he gets his leg tangled up with butler butler turned it real bad and he was down for a long time like this one definitely looked it was a, a an odd type of sprain because he didn't as much land on Hart as Hart kind of just like kicked him from behind as he was falling down and so it seemed like the mechanism was a little bit different and obviously you know the initial pain level like that can be an indicator but not a dispositive one how well he was able to move after it i mean he did take the two free throws he stayed in he finished the game afterwards spo was asked like would you let anyone else stay in the game after that kind of injury and spo said i don't know uh udonis haslam probably i don't want to get beat up uh, on national tv (laughs) so uh but butler couldn't move at all i thought the knicks really failed in not going after him on the defensive end because he couldn't move he just stood in the corner the entire time there was one time where a the heat missed a shot a loose ball rebound came towards him and he was only able to take like two steps so like he couldn't move at all at all and yeah and normally you might see guys kind of be able to stay in the game and then it'll really swell up on him afterwards but they can kind of at least move some he wasn't even able to do that like he it was he should not have stayed in the game like it, it, it would be and if it hadn't been like right at the end they surely it wouldn't have lasted because the Knicks would have figured out that he was a too much of a liability instead the Knicks had one field goal in the last five minutes of the game and turned it over three times and had three shots blocked so Miami's defense was great at the end uh and their pro- the process by the Knicks not so good uh when you consider how injured Butler was but yeah I would be beyond shocked if he plays in game two then they have what a three-day break until game three it is tuesday saturday yeah so that'll be big but i mean this looked like a pretty bad i like i you know in terms of grades it's hard to say again you just like you can judge all right what kind of a an angle was his foot at and how much weight did he put on it and you know how long was it in that position before it snapped back it's it's just it's impossible to really know and butler is really tough like i'm sure we will see him again in this series it would not totally 
shock me if that's not until game four though um and obviously it wouldn't be until game four i think if you didn't have this three-day break but that would it what a bummer because again i mean he was he wasn't as incandescent in this game but obviously was the best player on the floor i mean he had one of the best playoff series ever in that first run so i mean the east playoffs just continues to get ravaged by injuries and let's hope that he can make it back and be close to himself i think they could still win this series getting you know 75 percent of jimmy butler for five of the next six games i think that's possible and and but winning this game was imperative and huge blown opportunity for the knicks like you think surely the knicks will just win game two but they should be up two zero or or one zero and headed towards two zero you think right now but that said when everyone was healthy and available i felt like this series was or this game largely hued to what i thought would be the case where the heat were just more veteran butler was the best player on the floor Bo a little bit better coaching and you just kind of and the knicks really struggling to score in the half court so there's also the return potentially of randall though and you you have to think they'll bring him back regardless but I wonder how many minutes he'll play. Do they bring him off the bench? There's also the three-day break for him too. So yeah, I, I'm I'm very interested to see what their strategy is there. They, like I said, this is a pretty good matchup for him when healthy. Partic- and particularly if Butler is going to be out, I mean, they really have no one guard him. So uh, unless it's going to be Bam, everyone else, he should be able to just power through, you would think. Uh, um, but yeah, be interesting game two for sure. Our next playback, by the way, is going to be tomorrow. We'll do the end of... Sixers Celtics if it's close but then of course the main event is going to be a huge game two in Denver and Phoenix thanks so much for being subscribers and if you are not a subscriber this West second round is going to be awesome get in you can get our analysis of every game we're going to start doing our free agent rankings and then obviously all 30 off seasons a lot of pretty damn interesting off seasons coming up here Danny particularly with the disappointments that we've already had in the first round for some teams and then even more disappointments to come for teams that have very very high expectations so uh if you're listening on the public feed please consider subscribing never a better time we'll talk to you all soon at bet365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every goal every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period whatever the sport whatever the moment it's never ordinary at bet365 21 plus only must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.